Osiris. coming up to the end of this decade there's been quite a bit of music from the 2010 up until right now absolutely there's been some excellent music that's been played here over the last 10 years some excellent albums some records that i'm starting to get really scared about them being 9 10 almost 11 years old um we here at beyond the pond as you guys know have been counting down our top 10 I think this last year was top 20 favorite albums of each year but there's a whole six years of music before when beyond the pond started in the decade so over the course of the next few months we're going to release a bonus episode once a month counting down our 10 favorite records of each year of the 2010s until we get to 2019 we're really excited about this we're going to dive in get super nostalgic talk a bit about where we were in that our heads at that point in time what we were discovering musically and i think our lists are going to really reflect who we were as we both grew as listeners and people throughout the decade i went back and looked at some of these lists and it was nostalgic and kind of shocking at the same time i was thinking wow you can put out a fantastic record in 2013 and fall off the face of the earth yeah it's wild um to go back and see some of the bands i listened to in uh, 2011, 2012 that just don't make reappearances and then the ones that did make reappearances in like 2017 and 2018. So we're definitely excited to bring this to you guys. Keep an eye out for it here within the next month. It'll probably drop in mid-March and uh, we'll just go from there. Pretty stoked. Folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 55 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself generally use the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands. Because we love Fish, we are Fish fans. The problem with Fish fans is they're myopia. They only listen to Fish. They can recount setless frontwards and backwards and when this version of this song was played. But you ask them about other bands, they look at you with a blank stare. And frankly, it makes you unfun to be around. We want to do something about that. Absolutely. We are very, very excited here about what's going on in episode 55. We are joined by a writer, 
thinker, a family man, a fish fan, a renaissance man, if you will, to break down the storage jam and dive deep into the world of Chicago's psychedelic indie rock underbelly. We're talking about none other than Mr. Rob Mitchum. We're so excited to have him on, aren't we? Yeah, we wanted to have Rob on for a very long time. He's uh, certainly contributed a bunch to both the indie rock and fish communities. He's uh was a longtime writer for Pitchfork. Not sure if he still is. And you uh, may know him on Twitter as Fish Crit in terms of uh, really excellent and insightful criticism as uh, to fish shows. Absolutely. Yeah. He uh, had a project going for a long time that he mentions in this. I think he has since slowed on it a bit, but it was, um, he was working every single fish show, writing about every single fish show from 1993 onward. And, um, as someone who has listened to every 92, 93, 94, and 95 spring show that the band has ever played, I can tell you that it is a, um, it's a, it's a long journey and it is a rewarding journey. His writing is fantastic. We'll link to some of it in our show notes here, but um, I think you guys are going to really like his perspective, both from a larger musical standpoint, as well as uh, we dive pretty deep into the storage jam and the impact that it had on fish overall. Yeah, what's good about Rob is that, well, he's kind of ideal for Beyond the Pond, that he knows Fish inside and out, but also knows tons of other indie rock bands, a very, very deep well of knowledge. And I certainly learned a lot about hearing him wax about the history of uh, the Chicago indie scene, kind of like starting in the late 90s, moving up to present. And you will uh, discover a lot of different bands that you will very much enjoy. And that's kind of what we set out to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There were a lot of times during this episode where I kind of just sat back and enjoyed it myself. Rob came uh, with a wealth of knowledge, like you said, and I think you guys are going to get a lot out of this. There's a ton of music that we're going to feature here. And uh, if nothing else for your future trips to Chicago, you will now know why it's so important to go to venues like the hideout or the empty bottle, because there's just phenomenal music being played on a regular basis there. And you can get phenomenal hot dogs dragged through the garden with all the sport peppers and the green relish and all that stuff. I've tried many times to get a decent Chicago dog in New York City, and no one can really do it. You're making me homesick for home right now. Ah. Without further ado, let's get to a conversation with Rob Mitchell. Thanks so much for having me, fellas. Uh, yeah, I'm a, a fan of the podcast and definitely uh, believe in your mission here and what you're doing. We appreciate that greatly. Um, so tell us, I think, you know, you, I know you've been on uh, a few podcasts in the network here. Um, tell us, though, uh, kind of your background as like a fish fan, how you came to be and um, kind of where your thoughts are with the band at this point in time. Yeah, sure. So I started getting into them. Uh, it was in 1995. Uh, I remember uh, very clearly a girl in my, uh, I think it was U.S. history class, uh, giving me my first tapes, which were very odd tapes to get right off the bat. I got July 15th, 1991, 
and uh, April 16th, 92, which I guess is a pretty good like starter tape you hear a lot. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, like that's like the big Santa Barbara show that weren't traded. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, the Crest Theater Game Hen show was, I think, an early one, too. So I like the more I think about it, the more I think what first appealed to me even like more so than the music was just the availability of a band that had all of their concerts recorded and played something different every night. Uh, Because at at the time I was, you know, sort of in the sweet spot for like alternative rock bands of the mid nineties and had gotten online through, I think prodigy at the time and started sort of trading uh, bootlegs for, you know, Nirvana or Pearl jam or bands like that. And, you know, there weren't that there were tapes out there, but there weren't that many. And then it the idea of a band that was just, you know, comprehensively taped every night and every tape gave you something different uh, really appealed to me. And I think I latched onto that first and then got into the music pretty rapidly after that. But that was sort of the breakthrough for me. So it was fall 95. I didn't get into them fast enough to go see them uh, at Halloween 95 at, at Rosemont. Uh, even though I, I was growing up in Chicago, so I very easily could have gone and seen them and seen them play one of my favorite albums. Uh, I love The Who and I love rock operas, so it would have been the perfect origin story. Uh, but instead, uh, like a lot of Midwest fish fans my age, I saw them for the first time at Alpine in 96. I think that is like the most common first fish show for everybody I meet in the area. Um <laughs> I've seen them, I guess it's almost 70 times now, uh, sort of built up more and more shows per year through the rest of the 90s uh, and, you know, went to Cyprus and did some shows in 2000. Uh, And then when they went on hiatus, uh, I kind of did too and just sort of like grew apart from fish and um, people who follow me on Twitter might know that I didn't listen to them at all in 2.0 and still kind of resist listening to them, mm. uh, any 2.0 shows. Uh, at this point, I'm just kind of being stubborn, I think, <laughs> more than anything else. <laughs> and I kind of have it in my mind that for a while I was listening to every show uh, from the start of 1993 onward. And I always said, okay, I'm not going to listen to 2.0 until I finish listening to every, you know, 93 to 2000 show then i'll listen to 2.0 finally um but i've kind of like slowed way down on that project so uh eventually i'll get there and i have dabbled a little bit i've cheated a little bit on some of the big shows but for the most part didn't file them in 2.0 still haven't really listened to them in 2.0 um at the time instead uh sort of my parallel track of being into 90s alternative grew into a love of indie rock and a lot of independent music uh around the early 2000s uh, i got it in my head that i could write record reviews and started writing for this at the time pretty rinky dink little site called pitchfork that was basically just known uh for people being real mean or writing really flowery reviews of radiohead albums um they didn't pay anybody at the time Basically, the only uh, thing you had to do to write for Pitchfork was promise to write two reviews a week, uh, which I did. And uh, is, this, so, is this during hiatus or what, what year is this when you started this, writing? Uh, my first Pitchfork review ran in 2003. So okay, okay. right, right uh, during the uh, 
the first comeback. Do you remember um, what the record what the record you reviewed was? My first review was the Royal Tenenbaums soundtrack. Oh, no way. <laughs> uh, though my audition for Pitchfork was I sent in a very negative review of the Strokes, the first Strokes album, uh, which I have since come to love. Uh, but at the time was like, ah, oh, these pretty boys like pretending to be punk. This is <laughs> this is so fake. These guys don't know what they're doing. They can't play their instruments. Like all the stupid stuff kids say. So. Yeah, it worked out uh, pretty well, uh, as everybody knows. Now Pitchfork went on to become this like big giant site, and I just kind of was along for the ride. Uh, now they are a big, you know, national conglomerate owned by Condé Nast, and pretty much everybody I started working with there has moved on to bigger and better things or other things. Uh, and yeah, there's like this whole early crew of Pitchfork people that have kind of some have gone on to really amazing things like you know Amanda Petrusich is music critic at the New Yorker now like it's insane some some of them are you know writing books and doing real proper writer things and I'm just happy to uh have been sort of in the mix of those people for so many years and it was a lot of fun uh but yeah my music tastes kind of developed along I guess standard pitchfork lines I listened to a lot of indie rock in the 2000s um have gotten into, I guess, some other, you know, weirder territory along the way. But mostly, I would say, still listen to predominantly indie rock. Um, but when Fish came back in 2009, uh, everything just kind of matched up for me. And that was like, it felt right to get back into them at that time. Like, I remember my my old Fish buddies texting me when they announced the Hampton shows and being like, you know, I could get back into fish right now and going back and listening to my old CDRs, pulling out the shoebox and going through them, discovering that it was much easier uh, thanks to internet streaming to listen to shows than it was, you know, back in the day. So in terms of, you know, fish comes back in 09 and I know I had a similar, you know, um, period of kind of a break with fish between Coventry. For me, it was Coventry to Hampton um, but, you know, since they come back, what have kind of been your larger thoughts on fish as they've grown over the last now 10 years to kind of where, where they are now in early 2019? Yeah. Like it's crazy to think that it's already been 10 years or will be in a couple months. Like that I think is just sort of settling in. Uh, and I have some thoughts about that as we dig into the show we're going to talk about, but like, um, I don't know. I just like, I, I've I went through I think sort of a period where I got I started getting jaded yeah about sort of the new era of fish and then sort of flipped a switch I don't know when exactly it happened but in the last few years where it's just all playing with house money at this point and it's like just the ritual of it like whether I'm going to a show or whether I'm streaming it the next day or whether I'm talking about it live while couch touring or whatever is just so much fun and it's like such a great like bonus that we're able to do this right now. And I think, you know, honestly, the last couple of years they've been great and like everything I could have, I could like possibly imagine wanting from the band, you know, 30 plus years into their career and better than I ever would have thought they would have gotten to. Uh, when things started out in 2009 and it was like fun to have them back, but also it was like, yeah, this isn't quite the same, but you know, I'll take it. We'll, we'll, 
we'll get by. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's great for me to see, you know, just a handful of shows every year. I think recently my 3.0 show total passed my 1.0 show total, um, which was also kind of a weird thing to put into perspective, just how long this era has gone on. Um, but yeah, I just, I have fun with it and it's great to like see old friends and meet new people. I went to one show with Brian and his lovely wife. That was a very forgettable show, but we had a good time together. <laughs> and, uh, um but yeah so i saw like this past year i just saw the rosemont run and was i I found it to be very satisfying fish and it really wiped me out which i can't quite tell if that's more just me getting old or if they are just like so on right now that it's kind of hard to process i think i got sort of soft from uh you know the many years of these sort of warm-up first set uh and then you know the real meat being like half of the second set to now where they do jamming in the first set and in the second set and uh, like three nights in a row of that i was just like i don't know if i could have handled any more i listened to the halloween show and i still haven't listened to the rest of the vegas run because i was just like fished out but in like a happy way yeah <laughs> like yeah. like i'm satiated so um Let's jump into kind of our larger discussion here about the storage jam. I know that we wanted to chat about that. Um, what are you guys' thoughts kind of about Super Bowl nine and about uh, kind of the storage jam in general? Well, certainly there had been some precedent for Watkins Glen being a really nice place to see a fish show. Yeah, two great festivals. Yeah, didn't quite work out that way the most recently. Um, I don't like the July, I don't care for July 2nd very much. I think to me, July 2nd, it sounds like one very big first set. They play lots and lots of songs. Too many of those songs are short. They played stuff like Susskind Hotel, which was actually very good when Mike and Trey played it with the Benevento Russo duo in 2006, but Fish has never done any kind of justice to it. That show was a bit disconcerting. It kind of sounded to me like a really competent fish cover band, as in all the notes, not much of the soul. But July 3rd, which um, I will say, Brian, you've been um, hyping the Shedman for some time. I listened to it a long time ago. But really, only really listened to it in preparation for this episode. That's um, lots of first set songs. It's some very interesting extra mustard. And in the second set, the light's fantastic. And um, W, the Waves kind of has like a mini version of like the IT jam where, you know, like the ambience into a very good what's the use. So I think 7-3 for the air is a very good show. I don't think it would pass muster in 2018, which is all for the better because it means fish improved. But that show kind of pointed the way forward in a way, would you say? Yeah, I, I mean, I've long thought that was kind of the most important pre-Buck Your Face show that they played. Um, combining the Colonel Forbins with like the big storytelling about the band basically creating this or uh, playing their own reality uh, in the storage unit for almost 30 years. And um, then you get 
all these classic songs that have just like a little extra something. The mound in that first set is one of my favorites, if not my favorite version of that song ever played. Uh, the song I heard the ocean sing kind of joins the simple from the first night of the festival as like very patient ambient jams that really showcased where the band could go as they move beyond. Like there were a lot of jams in early 09, 2010, even the start of 2011 that Trey would just go this very rhythmic plane and then maybe peak it uh, with, with, with like a major key, um, but it would end in this weird two minutes of like ambient transition that rarely really went anywhere. And this was the first time that they kind of seemed to be crossing that threshold and um, really just able to jam in a way that was not so structured or formulaic. Um, what are your thoughts on all this, Rob? Yeah, so I hadn't listened to these shows in a long time either, like the actual show shows. Um, and what really struck me going back and, you know, calling them up on Live Fish was, yeah, there were just so many songs every night <laughs> of that festival. And those sets were a little extra long, but man, there's like 30 songs a night on some of these. Like, uh, yeah, it's just, it's it's crazy to look at, you know, both, I think, from like a 1.0 perspective and even from like a 2019 perspective. Um, it's, it's crazy to think about. We we've already touched on this, I guess, in terms of, you know, just how long they've been back, but like the same amount of time between now and Super Bowl, if you like move that back to 1.0, it's like talking about 1992 and 2000. Yeah, totally. And think about how different the band was between 1992 and 2000. And so I was thinking about, all right, so how different is the band from 2011 to 2019? Definitely not as like big of an evolution no. as 92 to 2000, uh, but different in a lot of really interesting ways that maybe we haven't quite right. processed yet because we've been too close to it, <laughs> listening to every show, you know, in those intervening eight years and kind of seeing things evolve in more of like, a, you know, a fine detailed uh, way than when you just are grabbing, you know, the highlight tapes from every year between 92 and 2000. Uh, so I think, like, I agree that this was a big turning point, and I think the Storage Jam especially uh, was really probably the most, possibly the most important, like, pivot in 3.0 so far. Because I think, to me, sort of the story of 2009 and 2010 and even early 2011 was just the band proving to the fans that they could do sort of the basics of fish. And what I gathered from not having experienced it myself, because I skipped 2.0, uh, was that, you know, when you get to people that went through 2.0 and got all the way through Coventry, just felt really betrayed by the band. Not being able to play their songs, not being able to, like, just show professionalism and respect to the people that showed up and to see them uh well and they'd come on stage some nights and like if you listen to those shows they don't even say a word to the crowd for like six shows in a row there's not even there's no acknowledgement and starting in 09 this conversation between the crowd and the band was suddenly back and right page was speaking for the band and trey was telling stories and corbins and uh yeah that that like aspect of this connection between the two was not there at all in 2.0. Right. So I feel like so much of 2009 through early 2011 was just like, let's just get back 
to showing that we can be a competent fish again. So Dave's point about it kind of sounding like a fish cover band, <laughs> like a really good fish cover band, I think was kind of the goal for a little while there. Um, but fish can't really thrive, I think, unless they are growing in some direction, like exploring some new territory. And I think really the storage jam was the first time that they found something new, some new direction to move in, in the 3.0 era. And I think they followed up in that direction and fits and starts after that point. Uh, but they clearly, I mean, you could see even later in summer 2011, they had found something new to try. And that just like lifted everything up to uh, like a new, a new tier of, of shows that they've been writing ever since. I think for me, um, certainly the storage jam was a big turning point. I think the storage jam itself is more interesting for what it represents than it is to actually listen to. I think aside from maybe about 30 to 40 minute mark, there isn't much that I actually enjoy listening to because it's quite dissonant, lots of theremin, lots of things bouncing around in terms of getting like actually somewhat of a melodic groove. It gets the very almost like echoes Pink Floydy thing around um, like 30 minutes to 40 minutes, like I think thereabouts for that 10 minute stretch. I mean, still for me, the big turning point would be the first show of uh, was 2012, like the Thursday night in Worcester. They couldn't even sell out. And then they threw down a fucking amazing tour opener. And then the big turning point from that was the fuck your face show. But I guess in terms of putting that out of their comfort zone, um, yeah, the storage jam. Yeah, I mean, I think it's yeah. if you contrast the storage jam with, say, the drive-in jam, I think the drive-in jam for Magnaball is much more listenable. Um, it has a lot more ideas like based around melody and a lot of the sections in it sound like they're trying to write songs almost. And it sounds a lot more like 2013 to 2019 type of jamming where there's real cohesion and there's a real you know, specific idea that they're going for over a couple of minutes. Um, so I would definitely agree. I mean, I, I tend to like the dissonance of the storage jam. Um, it's definitely, I think, a little bit more up my alley in terms of um, the band almost playing in a minimalist uh, fashion. But I would definitely agree on like a larger scale. What that jam does is just forces the band to communicate over an hour-long period in time musically, regardless of how good they were at that point. And that, I think, just they, they brewed with confidence after that. And the fact that they then incorporated jams in August, um, you know, the rock and roll from the Gorge, the light from Tahoe, the entire element set, the Piper from Dix, they incorporated these jams with this very raw industrial type sound was, you know, one of the first times you really heard them take on a completely different um, kind of sonic experimentation and bring that into their jamming that really wasn't the case with exile on main street or waiting for columbus at least yeah absolutely yeah i think it it filled that role that maybe the halloween albums in the 90s used to play yeah which was to really challenge them to do something that wasn't traditionally associated with fish and then sort of assimilate that into what it meant to be fish going forward 
which I think is really what makes like sort of their progression in the nineties so great. And it's, it's like always fascinating to me how seemingly very simple changes, almost like technical changes uh, can produce such interesting music from fish. So anytime they have to play with different gear, like it, it just, it, it, it does something different to them. <laughs> so it, it like even as right. recently as the Kazvad Voxed uh, set where they had to play all these weird white instruments they had custom made for the, for the show gave them a different sound. Or if you go back to the nineties, like Trey's percussion kit or Trey's mini keyboard, or whenever Paige adds a new keyboard to his rig or when Mike gets his like foot pedal synth thing, like you see like immediately like the ripples of that addition uh, work its way into the sound. And the storage jam was such a huge break. I mean, even from the shows, the other Super Bowl shows, I mean, they, they played, I'm pretty sure, with entirely like different gear for that show, right? Because they pretty much went straight from their main stage to the special stage. And it sounds yeah, like it was all stuff set up in that little storage unit. Yeah. And it sounds like I mean they're using way they're using like synth fish fishman's using synth drums. I think there's two synth drum sets because there's a long period where it sounds like Trey's on a drum set. Uh the theremin, of course, which, you know, had its day in the nineties, but then like Paige picked up in the for the rest of two thousand eleven and a lot of those jams you mentioned where you can hear that sound are jams where Paige moves the theremin at some point. Uh, like Mike is playing, I think an upright bass for part of it, which is like this weird clash of sounds because everything else is so synth- synthetic and digital. Uh, it's just like they went way out of their comfort zone for that set, and I don't think it ever would have worked to sound like that in a regular fish show for more than like a few minutes at a time. Uh, but just the fact that they added that color to their palette made everything a little more dangerous and risky, I think, in a way that, you know, most importantly excites the band and keeps them wanting to do it rather than just this sort of recital performances you would sometimes get up to that point and after that point to some extent as well. But it, it just painted a new path forward for them to, to play around with. Well, it's interesting because by the next summer and by especially late August when they played the three nights at Dick's that were... I was so fortunate to see that was the first time I felt like I was seeing great fish live in person. Um, and those were like, it'd take me like 30 shows to get to that point. So anybody who sees a great fish show in under 10 shows now at this point in fish, I'm just jealous of her <laughs> for not having to suffer through that you much. Suffered. But, um, you know, those jams were, <laughs> suffered. those jams were like, I, I suffered man. Uh, mm. Alpine night one of 2009. Don't let's, <laughs> um, but uh, you know those jams were like they were prettier they were more melodic they were more song based the, the one thing I've always wondered and, and I, I know you have thoughts on this Rob is you know to me the storage style was kind of a means to an end of let's play in this really different unique style, style of music so that we can continue so we can start jamming again and I haven't heard as much like direct storage influences uh, since that immediate tour after Super Bowl, but um, do you do you hear it at all later in in 3.0? Well, I think, and this has probably been discussed to death on this podcast and other fish podcasts, but 
you know, everybody talks about the last two years, kind of that the new element that was introduced was Paige's synthesizer tones. That he got a he got a new tech. Uh, Trey has mentioned this in, in interviews. He, he started working with a whole new sort of set of sounds uh, that has really, I think, inspired the whole band to stretch things out, try different types of jams, try, you know, sort of new textures that maybe they hadn't explored uh, since, I would say, like, 99 when things got real sort of spacey and ambient. Uh, yeah, totally. And the thing that jumped out at me going back to the storage jam this last week was that a lot of those synthy tones are there, like they're present in the storage jam. And, you know, and, you know, Paige had, it wasn't like Paige had not used a synthesizer before. Again, like 99, there was a lot of that. And, you know, there's, he always, it seemed like Meat Stick was the one place where he would bring out the, that just really weird sounding yes. synthesizer tone. So it would, it would be fun, but it would kind of be like jokey, like this is, right. you know, like his equivalent of the vacuum or his guitar, I guess. Um, but they've started, you know, sort of using that sound seriously. And it's been the basis of, you know, to my mind, virtually every noteworthy jam of the last couple of years and really sort of hit its stride in the Baker's Dozen. And to me, it made total sense that the theremin showed up at the very end of the Baker's Dozen, that last show, I think for the first time since 2011, maybe 2012. Yeah, and to me, that was like, totally logical because i felt like they actually have been sort of moving finally back to this sound that they toyed with in late 2011 and then kind of forgot about or it regressed into the background as they tried out some other things i mean i think the marimba lumina as hated as that became was also sort of an experiment in that sort of tone the problem was like only trey wanted to play it and when mm. Trey is playing that, he can't play guitar <laughs> <laughs> and it's causing all those sorts of problems. So, um, right. yeah. Plus the problem with that was they would have the Marimba Lumina and then they would all start playing percussion instruments to like a drums jam. Yeah. And I thought like, what the fuck? This isn't like a widespread panic show. Like get back to your instruments. And, yeah. That was like I a case of a new piece of equipment leading to, I think a dead end <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that, they, that they fortunately realized after, you know, only a handful of those but whatever i saw one of those too it was fine but yeah i mean i i've said i've said this on twitter a bunch of times that uh i always wanted it this way pages uh the page edm song is like the most important fish song of the last couple years even though they haven't really played a very good version of it (laughs) like they haven't played like the landmark live version of it but just the sound of that song has bled into all of these like really cool jams of the last two years and finally, I think giving them like a new sound in 3.0 to that they can they can work at and expand, and and it you know that sound got into the Casvot Vox stuff too, so you could kind of see them tinkering around with that even in like new compositions. And I mean, I think it's the most exciting thing about Fish in a while. And I think you can you know you know work the roots all the way back to the Storage yeah, Jam. It's the first time I feel like I heard Fish really trying to go in this more sort of digital electronic direction um you know in their own way not in like a cheesy disco biscuitsy way <laughs> yeah as you're saying all this i'm kind of thinking in you know with regards to i always wanted this way it kind of reminds me of where mercury was in like 2016 and even i mean, basically up until this year um 
Dave and I are huge fans of that song and huge proponents have been since we started this podcast of the band really embracing it as a jam vehicle and you know to see it really reach that full potential at Rosemont and then again in uh, Las Vegas was uh, was super exciting and I've got to wonder if you know at some point here 2019 2020 is I always wanted it this way finally going to get like five plays a year to the point where they can actually expand beyond it but um, you know the other thing I was thinking was from a Baker's Dozen standpoint the cross-eyed and painless from jam filled night the song I heard the ocean sing that I saw and you know um, I can't believe I didn't totally draw the connections but it makes total sense now that I'm thinking about it and the steam from uh, December 30th 2017 all those versions really touch on this like weird industrial and then ambient style that you really hadn't heard the band play inside of a proper show you know definitely since 2011 but also like since summer 1998 and it felt like they were finally reaching back to almost like a Brian Eno level of influence that they hadn't really been able to approach in almost 20 years um, to really bring into their music. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think maybe Japan 2000 yes, is the yes, case where you hear a lot of that. That Fukuoka show is such an outlier, but I love it so much. I mean, it's like that is an example of like an alternate dimension of fish where they like got real i guess sort of post-rocky and indie in a way that was never going to happen uh but it's just so thrilling to me to hear that they're capable of that and that you know that side of fish could pop out when you least expect it and the fact that it has been popping out more often in the last couple years is it's really exciting to me and it also makes a lot of sense because like you know you you're not going to see fish play. You're just not going to see Trey do like 20 minute long rapid fire machine gun guitar solos anymore, which is fine. I mean, it's like you're, you're going to, your playing is going to change with age. Uh, so their sort of interest, maybe long dormant interest in this sort of more textured, Eno-esque soundscapey ambient sound makes total sense for what they should be exploring maybe at this stage in their career. Which is why they've got to do Loveless for Halloween next year. I'm always here for a Loveless Halloween. I don't think it's ever going to happen, but that's always my hope. No. Every year I'm like, maybe this is the Loveless year. I'm ready for it. Every year I can hope and hope for the Loveless Halloween. If you, Rob, if you have any uh, any strings to pull at Pitchfork, I think you should push for a Sunday review of Live Fish 04, the Fukuoka show. I think it would... Uh, I would love to hear like a, a large scale indie rock review of that show. Yeah. I mean, that's the show that I will give to like an ultimate fish skeptic, but I always felt guilty giving them that show. Cause it's like, if they really liked it, where do you go from there? Yeah, exactly. They're not going to find another show like that. Uh, you might find like a few moments like that, but there's never, there's not another show like that show. That show is just like crazy. It's its own world. Were either of you guys at the element show in 2011? I was, yes. Okay. Right, yeah, in so, Chicago. And like I was, when I was looking back at summer of 2011, um, I went to two extremely forgettable shows in June, uh, one in Cincinnati and one at Meriwether. Mm. Uh, that the only thing notable of those two shows is that I saw them play Lonesome Cowboy Bill at Meriwether, which was truly bizarre and random. Um, and so, and that 
was one of many moments maybe in 3.0 where I'm like, uh, I don't know if this is working. I don't know if this is going to ever have the same spark. Uh, and then post Super Bowl, I saw all three nights at UIC. And I think, you know, looking back, the element set might still be my favorite set I've seen in person in 3.0. Uh, I haven't had the greatest luck with catching like the big, big shows of 3.0 since I don't live on the East Coast and don't go to Dick's. Um, but the uh, yeah, that that set was amazing. I love, as you can probably tell, I love Page on Theremin. So I got my Page on Theremin. Uh, the flow of that set was so cool. The fact that it was mostly newish songs, 2.0 songs or Steam was in that set too, right? Yeah, um, that's. I mean, that, that's probably. I have a bit of a blind spot with 2011. I only saw one show in 2011 for a variety of reasons, most of them scheduling and the fact that the four shows I saw in 2010, I thought were all pretty weak. But uh, yeah, certainly Elements, I think that's like a top five show of the year. I mean, that may be, you could argue that's the best two, uh, the best two set show of 2011. And I wouldn't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily disagree. So that was very good one to hit. Yeah, it already felt like, you know, this is six weeks post-Storage Jam, but it felt like they had some new tricks in their arsenal and they were going to start pulling those out. And maybe they didn't do it quite as frequently as I wanted sort of in subsequent years, but that was like a that was a show that gave me another sort of push of momentum to be excited about them again, for sure. Shall we listen to some of the Storage Jam? I think we should.
I'm old enough to remember a time when I had to carry my swaggy stems and seeds in a Ziploc bag, and they would spill everywhere and make a mess and just be awful. But I don't have to do that anymore. That's right, because we are sponsored by a company named Kush Supply Co. or Kush Co. They're the wonderful Osiris sponsor and partner who also happens to be the largest producer of packaging products for the cannabis industry. As medical and recreational cannabis continue to be legalized, one leader has emerged as the go-to company to produce state-compliant packaging for cannabis, and that is Kushko. What does that mean? States have varying laws about how marijuana can be packaged. They need to be child-proof, comply with labeling requirements, and so on. Kush knows all the regulations for every state. The packaging doesn't have to be ugly. Kush Car works with producers to create their own branding on amazingly innovative boxes, tubes, bottles, and other packages, so they look amazing and function extremely well. Kushco also produces vaping hardware and supplies. If you've been in a cannabis dispensary lately, you've definitely seen Kushco products. Kushco has offices in 10 states, plus Canada and China. Please go to kushsupplyco.com slash podcast to learn more about what they're up to. The sooner you sign out with Kushco, the sooner you can stop using that worthless dugout for your one-hitter. It's time to step it up and get into the 21st century with some products from Kushco. And with that, let's go beyond the pond. Yeah, so the reason why I wanted to talk about the storage jam uh, here in this episode uh, was that, uh, well, for one, it's, I think, a really great jam that has been very influential in subsequent fish history. But also, I remember very distinctly uh, where I was when I heard this set. Uh, They were, if I recall correctly, uh, webcasting the show just audio only on Sirius that weekend. Uh, I stayed up late after everybody went to bed because I knew that there was going to be a a secret festival set, just like the old days. Uh, And listening to that live is one of my favorite Fish 3.0 memories because I just like I couldn't fathom that they were going to play something that experimental ever again or really at, you know, sort of any stage in fish, fish history. And I talked a lot earlier about how I sort of had parallel music listening tracks where uh, at the same time I was, you know, digesting a lot of fish in the 90s. I was also getting deeper and deeper into indie rock and sort of subsequent to that more sort of experimental genres. Uh, And those two sort of musical styles seem to be diverging. But uh, the Storage Jam was really a case where it sounded like fish you know, was not only aware of these more experimental genres, but could actually play like that uh, if they just wanted to. So that was really exciting and thrilling to me. Uh, And so sort of what I chose to talk about here uh, for this episode is uh, sort of music um, that reminds me of, you know, touches on a little bit 
what fish I think was trying to do with the storage jam and what they've sort of explored, I think more frequently the last couple of years uh, and really touches on a lot of music that I've been into lately and conveniently has been local to where I live uh, here just outside of Chicago. Uh, so it's a little strange maybe to sum all this music up as a Chicago scene. Uh, scene is such a loaded word and I'm not entirely sure uh, if this qualifies, uh, but there's a lot of musicians sort of uh, collaborating and exploring similar territory here in Chicago right now that I love. Uh, and I wanted to sort of call attention to some of those people uh, here in this segment. Uh, but to, to get into what's going on in Chicago today, uh, you really have to kind of go back about 25 years now uh, to what Chicago was doing in the mid-90s. Um, Chicago, I think like a lot of cities in the mid-90s, had sort of its turn as the, the next Seattle, uh, as alternative rock was really booming. Uh, and in Chicago, that meant, uh, you know, sort of the time when the Smashing Pumpkins were sort of rising to stardom. Uh, you also had like Liz Fair and Urge Overkill, sort of second tier alternative people that got pretty big. Uh, you had bands like Veruca Salt that are maybe second, third tier. Uh, moving forward a few years and you start getting uh, Wilco uh, becoming big. Uh, sort of these flagship bands of 90s alternative rock. Uh, but just adjacent to that, uh, there was a lot of exciting music going on that sort of got this maybe unfortunate label of post-rock attached to it, which post-rock is one of those genre names that doesn't really mean anything. Like, unless you heard a bunch of bands that that label was applied to, you would have no idea what a post-rock band sounded like. Uh, and sort of the flagship band of that scene uh, was Tortoise, who is still a working operation today in Chicago. Uh, and sort of the legacy of Tortoise, I feel like, really tied a lot of strings together in Chicago from different musical scenes. Uh, and it's still like bearing fruit today. Like the Tortoise family tree is everywhere in the music that is being made in Chicago today. Uh, so Tortoise uh, was and is a band that is pretty hard to categorize. And that's why this sort of weird nebulous post-rock label really stuck to them. Uh, but they brought together um, a lot of sort of what would be called, I guess, sort of classic like 80s, 90s college rock uh, together with a lot of jazz uh, that was going on in Chicago and also uh, together with a lot of sort of modern classical or people exploring sort of experimental composition in sort of like a minimalist or maybe ambient uh, setting. Uh there's a couple really great tortoise albums in the nineties. You can't really go wrong with any tortoise album. Uh, but uh, TNT is sort of, I think their consensus best record. Uh, Millions now living will never die is right before TNT is a really great album as well. Came out in 94, I believe. Um, and really sort of established this sound uh, for a lot of people. Um, so Tortoise is still around. Right around that same time, you started hearing a lot from uh, Jim O'Rourke, who is still playing around as well, though he has since moved to Japan and uh, makes a lot of just purely ambient music at this point. Uh, but at the time, he was sort of a centerpiece of the Drag City record label, which was uh, 
uh, a big Chicago record label of the time. A lot of like really good acts on it. And Jim O'Rourke kind of started out as your maybe more standard singer songwriter type, uh, but had a lot of experimental leanings that he would work into more traditional material uh, and then do some experimental records on the side. He also became really well known as a producer and produced uh, like early smog records, uh, people of that like sort of genre uh, of 90s indie rock. Uh, then went on to eventually join Sonic Youth uh, for albums like A Thousand Leaves, uh, one of the, and Murray Street, uh, some of the best sort of later Sonic Youth records. Uh, and probably most famously uh, sort of stepped in in the middle of the process of recording Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and sort of pushed Wilco into their uh, modern sound as well. So you had Tortoise, you had Jim O'Rourke, who's still kicking around. Uh, and then you had a really great band that doesn't get nearly as much attention uh, called the Cocktails. And the Cocktails share a lot of personnel with other bands in this area. So you have a guy like Archer Pruitt, who also plays in Sea and Cake, uh, which was sort of a Tortoise spinoff band as well. Uh, Archer Pruitt also has great solo records. Uh, there's a guy from 11th Dream Day, which is another great uh, sort of 90s alternative rock Chicago band that never quite you know, hit it on the level of some of the other bands around there at the time. Uh, but the Cocktails were a really interesting band. They described themselves as garage jazz. Uh, they were sort of like maybe jazz punk is sort of the best way to describe it, where they were playing sort of loungy jazz music, but at with sort of like a punk energy behind it. Uh, and it's a band that I really think a lot of Fish fans would get into, uh, particularly fans of sort of early Fish compositions when Trey was more into jazz uh, than he, you know, subsequently became. Uh, so a song like Buried Alive sounds like almost exactly like something the Cocktails would do. Uh, so, you know, between all these bands going on in the 90s, you, like I said, you had the Drag City record label, you had the Thrill Jockey record label, which was based out of Louisville, but had a lot of Chicago bands. Uh, there really sort of was the origins of this almost genreless Chicago scene uh, that brought together a lot of rock and jazz and avant-garde and electronic uh, music. It sort of created something new that is really hard to describe, um, but, you know, given time to flourish over 20 years has produced some really awesome bands of a younger generation uh, that are putting out great music today. So uh, before we dig into those bands, uh, I thought we'd listen to a couple tracks from the 90s, pretty early tortoise track from Millions Now Living Will Never Die called Glass Museum. So let's go to that.
think we established earlier that Rob, you and me are the same age. So I graduated from from Rutgers University in New Brunswick in 2001. I wrote for kind of like an alternative weekly, and all my friends, myself included, were obsessed with all these like thrill jockey bands, like Tortoise, Isotope 217. The Lonesome Organist, um, I guess Five Style, were actually on Sub Pop, but they were comprised of like Chicago musicians and were kind of affiliated with Tortoise and whatnot. Um, sea and Cake, like a lot of people talk about New Brunswick, New Jersey, they think of like basement shows at like hardcore bands or bands uh, like Thursday came from New Brunswick, Bouncing Souls, but actually in the mid to late nineties and early two thousands, you could go in a basement in New Brunswick and see guys trying to knock off like tortoise in the sea and cake. So oh, there was sure. uh, a very large contingent of people who were obsessed with like the empty bottle. We're like, why can't we be in Chicago? Those guys treat the empty bottle like the Sopranos treat the bottom bin club. <laughs> like, yeah, that was um, almost even other bands that were considered post-rock that weren't on thrill jockey, like broke back and karate and just um you know kind of of course fugazi who aren't really affiliated with that scene but you know for kids who listen to post rock got to put in like fugazi in there like the mid to late 90s but that was all those bands still hold up and when you were talking about with tortoise with regard to like modern classical music especially on um millions living now millions now living will never die the first song um the 20 minute song i guess is it pronounced dj or jed does anybody know i've always said jed but i don't know if that's actually true yeah there's part of that song with like the vibraphone that could be like a philip glass composition just in terms of like the repetition going on for a good five minutes i mean i could definitely if you're in the fish like a lot of like the more dissonant tweezer jams that in 1994 1995 you'll absolutely find something to love with tortoise or any of those like thrill jockey bands in the 90s but at the same time tortoise doesn't really have fish's warmth they don't have like you know like, like the catchy goofy songs about um you know like golgi apparatus and cavern and all the stuff that drew to fish in the first place but if you're there for like the heady jams you should really check out tortoise and i think i want to say in early maybe episode 10 i think we played the song salt the skies off of um it's all around you i forget in what context we played it it was the uh it was a very tortoisey jam it was the david bowie from jones beach 95 um of course yeah i mean listening to that record i listened to it a ton over the last week or so as we were preparing and i mean it's you you throw summer 95 summer 99 summer 03 and august 11 in a blender and you get that record and i to me the fact that i I don't hear it as much in the fish scene i feel like it's a record that so many people would um really love especially the the opening track uh jed um but let's jump into some of the newer bands that we uh that i know that you wanted to feature here rob um who do we have up first sure so uh the first band is kind of two bands two related bands that i wanted to to cover um and uh these bands are called cave and bitchin bajas and i will apologize right off the bat for the second 
band name. It's like a classic <laughs> example of great band, terrible band name, but, uh, yes. and, and also band name that does not at all describe what they sound like, but you know, it is what it is. Um, the reason I wanted to start with Cave and Bitchin' Bajas is uh, the this sort of main dude behind both bands is this guy named Cooper Crane. And he's probably not a very well-known name outside of Chicago circles, uh, but he is probably the most important person in this Chicago scene that I'm talking about today. Uh, not just as, you know, the band leader of two bands that are pretty central to the scene, but he has produced pretty much everybody I'm going to mention uh, over this segment. Uh, he is a guest star on a lot of those albums too. Just one of these sort of savant guys that is everywhere you look uh, in you know, Chicago bands making this kind of music right now. And so Cave has been around the longest. Uh, they actually formed outside of Chicago, but all moved here together. Uh, they are very much sort of in that post-tortoise, post-rock vein, uh, but a little heavier. I would say they're a little more on sort of the psych rock side, sort of spilling over into some like kraut rock, just very like propulsive rhythms. Also mostly instrumental like Tortoise. Uh, but just like cranked up a little bit. Uh, I've seen them a couple times. They are incredible live. They tend to do songs that repeat themselves so many times that it becomes like a psychedelic experience where you're just like in this like locked groove for, and you just like lose all sense of time. Um, I feel like, you know, what Dave said about Tortoise and the sort of like drawing upon this sort of modern composition, Terry Riley, Steve Reich type of sound is a really important part of this, this aspect of the Chicago scene where they are doing minimalism doesn't seem like the right word to me, though it is sort of minimalist compositionally. Uh, it's, but it's very dense and textured instrumentally uh, in a way that I think I find really satisfying, even if it's not, you know, sort of melodic, pop song structure uh and it really gets into this sort of you know heady space where you just lose yourself to these long uh sort of repetitive very subtly evolving songs uh rather than short poppy songs so cave is a great band i think for anybody who's into fish their most recent album which came out last year has basically six songs that could be excised right out of a modern fish jam. I think I I've never talked to these guys. I've never had a chance to ask them if they listen to fish. My sense is that they would probably deny it, but maybe it's just a case of convergent evolution, uh, that they've <laughs> sort of arrived at the same sort of groove based improv based, uh, just like nice loud rock music. Uh, so I picked a song from that record called dusty. Uh, which we can listen to now. And when we come back, I'll talk about Bitch and Bajas for a minute.
So yeah, so Bitch and Bajas is sort of like the sister band to Cave. Uh, it shares a couple members at this point, uh, both Cooper Crane and this guy Rob Fry, who plays a lot of mu- a lot of different instruments. Uh, Bitch and Bajas is basically largely synthesizer based, very ambient, uh, almost to the point of the, you would call it probably drone. Uh, they have put out a bunch of albums, and it seems like it's taking up more and more of Cooper Crane's sort of activity lately. Uh, but the uh, record from last year, Baja Fresh, just a beautiful double album out on uh, Drag City. Yeah, again, with the Baja puns. Uh, I don't know where the band name comes from. You'll have to ask Cooper Crane if you ever run across them. Um, yeah. It was just all leading up to the fact that they could name the album Baja's Fresh. Exactly. That was, that was the was- end game joke. It was inevitable, yeah. Um, but just has these really long and very sparse compositions, um, which I've been getting into a lot more lately, just sort of ambient music. It's great to work to. It's great if you go see it to just kind of like like float around in for an hour. Uh, I saw them like sort of an expanded Bitch and Bajas play Terry Riley's NC uh, one year, which was beautiful. Uh, uh, Sam Precop was one of the people that played with them at that show so again sort of Chicago scene crossovers um, they're a great band uh, I, I put in a song uh, called Jamu from Baja Fresh uh, that really gives you sort of a, a flavoring of, uh, of what their stuff is like Yeah, so uh, another band, another sort of special Bitch and Baja show I saw was them playing with a band called Natural Information Society, uh, which is actually sort of the project of this bass player named Joshua Abrams, who has taken up an instrument called the Gimbri. Uh, It's an African instrument that is a lot like a bass guitar, but has sort of like this more percussive feel to it as well. Uh, and a lot of the albums he's put out the last few years have been under this Natural Information Society label, uh, but with sort of a revolving cast of Chicago musicians. Uh, again, this is very minimalist, very ambient, but coming instead of from like an electronic or kraut rock 
uh, place. Uh, Joshua Abrams is sort of making that music from a jazz background. So you'll see a lot of shows with Natural Information Society where he will have like a horn section, a jazz horn section, but you're not getting solos. You're not even getting like features, really. You're getting this sort of just adding an extra layer of maybe bass clarinet or, uh, you know, like a like a baritone sax uh, over just this really easy groove. And pretty much every Natural Information Society set is just like one hour long uh, composition. Um, their albums kind of chop those up into more bite-sized pieces, which is, you know, they're still like 10, 12 minutes typically, uh, but a little more accessible than like a 50-minute drone. Uh, but this this is like the extreme of what I'm talking about with Bitch and Bajas, where you go see these guys and it's like a meditative state you get into. Uh, it's almost like medicinal to me <laughs> where over like the 50 minutes you just sort of your 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 brain waves lock into this rhythm often joshua abrams is just playing the same bass line for the whole time maybe with some subtle variations and you're just getting like beautifully slowly glacially changing layers over the top of that it's really great he's probably my favorite guy to see in chicago right now fans of december 1999 sans would uh would like this yeah, that's the fish era that really comes to mind. Yeah. And that was, it, I know that was a controversial era where Trey kind of took what he was doing with the, the tab trio and sort of made Mike and Fish do what he had, you know, his own <laughs> band doing, which is not Mike or Fish's style at all, uh, to just kind of ride the same groove for 20 minutes uh, while Paige and Trey, like, you know, trigger samples over the top. But, uh, you know, that's a unique era in uh, fish history that I like to revisit now and again. Um, and this is like, you know, taking that to the next extreme, of course, but we'll give you sort of the same sensations of just like letting it wash over you. Uh, but in a very, with like an underlying groove and uh, swing that is still there from sort of the jazz background of the players. Yeah, that we're, we're definitely spoiled here in Chicago because he does almost weekly shows with various combos and there's occasionally like a residency at the hideout, which is a great venue in Chicago, which is sort of under threat right now by a big development. So we're all very protective of the hideout right now. Right. Isn't like, like live nation threatened to like develop over it, or I guess doesn't live nation own the entertainment complex. It's going to go into it or. Yeah, it's a big, so it's like a big industrial area in the middle of Chicago. Uh, that is it used to be like a giant steel mill there. There was like a big city truck depot sort of stuff. And a big developer here in the city has bought all that land and wants to do like a giant, like uh, development that is sort of half residential and half was going to be this entertainment district run by live nation. So the hideout is this like little divey bar that is kind of like the only thing still in this no man's land where they want to put this development down. So uh, whether or not Live Nation gets their wish to put up like five new venues in that area or not, like the hideout is probably endangered. Uh, But there's all of the venues in Chicago are pretty much uniting in defense of it. So hopefully there'll be a happy ending there. I think I recall... Your friend and my friend Joel Burke tweeting about this show in New York, basically saying if you live in New York and you don't see Joshua Abrams, then you really have to reevaluate your life choices. So I, I felt like a chump for staying home. 
Right. And that sounds like Joel. And actually, if you want to hear some Natural Information Society live tapes, you should go to Joel's blog. Uh, he is uh, a very active taper of this sort of scene that I'm talking about in Chicago right now. <laughs> and uh, on Twitter, he's PFCIDB. And I'm blanking on his blog name right now, but I'm sure we can get it before the end of the show. Um, yeah, he's... He's recorded Joshua Abrams several times over. Uh, a lot of those shows, I'm sitting right next to him trying to be as quiet as possible. So if, if you want the experience of seeing Joshua Abrams with me, just download one of those Joel Burke shows and uh, you'll get it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I picked out a song from uh, his most recent album. Uh, the song's called Sideways Fall. Uh, and it's, you know, one of these sort of 11 minute sort of uh, excerpts from what would be a much longer uh, jam improvisation from Natural Information Society. guys so just before the break there before we heard um uh sideways fall we, we were talking about a friend of ours joel burke's blog that has some really fantastic recordings of a lot of these artists that we're talking about um we're going to link this in the show notes but um if you guys have not checked out sweetblag.tumblr.com and the spelling on that is exactly how it sounds now it's uh s-w-e-e-t blahg.tumblr.com um, definitely check that out there's some great recordings from chicago-based artists as well as there's a fantastic recent neil young solo performance uh two radiohead shows from the united center um and then some artists from outside of chicago as they pass through chicago uh that you guys should definitely check out so we'll be we'll be mentioning that um here when we link to the episode well, who do we have next here, Rob? Great. Yeah. So uh, the next one is another guy who is at sort of the center of a lot of different threads of the Chicago scene, but has recently gone trader on us and moved <laughs> to New York City like so many Chicago people in the past have done. 
Uh, and that's uh, Mr. Riley Walker, who I know has come up on uh, this show before. I was Many just times. listening to the Grayson Curran episode uh, where he uh, Grayson Grayson Curran's episode where he broke the news that Riley had re-recorded uh, the Lily White sessions in a <laughs> classically uh, I don't know how to put it uh, mischievous Riley Walker move. Uh, doing an entire full Dave Matthews band cover. So I never really got into the Dave Matthews band, so I don't feel totally qualified to comment on his take of it, though I do like it as a Riley Walker album. It sounds very Riley Walker, so I can see why DMB was an influence on him. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I've been into Riley for a while. Uh, he has some really, really good singer-songwritery uh, albums um, over the last few years. Uh, that also sort of draw in a lot of people from around the Chicago jazz and experimental scene. Um, he often plays with Leroy Bach, who was a member of Woco for a while. Uh, uh, Bach does a lot of the production and keyboards on his last couple records. Uh, he plays with um, a guy named Bill McKay, who is a Chicago guitarist. They've done some really awesome uh sort of acoustic duo records together that I would definitely recommend people check out. Uh, and, you know, Riley, uh, while he's, you know, pretty straightforward singer songwriter on record has gotten just jammier and jammier over time live uh, to the point where this current tour that he's on, I, I, I missed it, unfortunately, uh, but he's there. People have been putting shows up on archive.org and he's on NYC taper a lot. Uh, and he's he's pulling out some like 15, 20 minute jams now in these shows. Uh, so I would definitely recommend going and checking out some of those like recent shows on Archive. Uh, Riley is also probably the funniest like indie rock musician right now. He has a great yes. Twitter and his banter at these shows is always hilarious. So you get sort of this, while his music is very serious and you would never guess that he is sort of the like goofball that he is uh, between songs. Uh, it's, 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 it's really fun to experience and another sort of reason to check out his live tapes. Um, so I actually recently from, uh, I think it's Richmond, Virginia, where his, his van broke down in DC uh, and there's a crazy snowstorm and, the DMV area and he uh, shows up late at the Richmond, Virginia show and spends the entire show uh, going back and forth between saying that he's so fucking punk rock because he drove there on a busted van to then saying that he's a poser because he showed up late to the show and just back and forth, just self-deprecating. And he's absolutely hilarious. He also recommends what I don't live in Chicago anymore, but what looked to be the greatest diners, and uh cheap burritos in the city yeah yeah it's 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 like i don't know i i'm kidding him about being a traitor but it is a big loss to the city because riley <laughs> was like one of these guys that you would just see at all these shows if he was in town and he played here all the time and he played with everybody uh so it's kind of a bummer to lose a guy like that that's sort of a linchpin of the scene my other big but regret the value add to my city well, yeah, but you know, you guys got some musicians there. I think it'd be all right. Um, my my biggest regret about Riley moving to New York is that Steve Hyden and I had convinced him to come to one of the Rosemont Fish shows with us, 
Uh, oh man! But he moved uh, before he could actually come with us. He was going to go to the third night of Rosemont, and I would have had great material for this podcast, among other settings. Uh, but alas, no, no Riley Fish show stories. It feels like tell. the most Riley Walker show of the run. Yeah, it's like it shouldn't have worked, and somehow it does on uh, He would have loved that no quarter. I can I, yes. I can just imagine <laughs> how much he would have loved that. So it's a big miss. Uh, but not, yeah, so it's up to you, Dave. You got to take him to a Madison Square Garden show. So I picked out a song here that uh, maybe has it from his collaboration with uh, Bill McKay. Uh, and this was recorded live at another cool club here in Chicago called The Whistler. Uh, and it's a song called Land of Plenty. It gives you kind of a cool idea about how the two of them are just really adept at improvising off of each other in sort of this duo guitar style. So just before we heard that uh, Riley Walker song, Dave mentioned Jamie Branch, who is another sort of expat from Chicago to New York. Uh, but I think we can still claim her because at least half of her touring band is still based in Chicago. Uh, but Jamie Branch is coming more from the sort of pure Chicago jazz side of things. Uh, but as I keep saying, all these boundaries sort of blur together in this scene. Uh, she put out a record uh two years ago now or is this last year yeah, fly dies last, last year. year uh called fly or die which was well now i guess 2017 uh it's my favorite album of 2017 uh it is just an amazing jazz record that doesn't really sound like any other jazz records i've heard it sort of like skirts the boundaries of free jazz but has some also really like hard groove uh tracks mixed in there too uh she has a really weird quartet for that record which is her on trumpet uh a drummer and then both a stand-up bass player and a cellist so you have just like this really interesting deep textured low end uh that she's playing over uh it's a great album i'd urge anybody to check it out uh it's also on a really good record label in chicago right now called international anthem which puts out a lot of jazz, but also has been, you know, sort of uh, getting into some other genres as well. Uh, they put out an album late last year by a jazz drummer here named Micaiah McCracken, who is also excellent and basically does 
big long improv shows with various uh, groups of people and then edits them into uh, albums, like takes snippets from those improvisations and then blends them together as medleys. So there's this whole world of Chicago jazz that I'm definitely not an expert on, but wherever it sort of crosses over uh, with this sort of, you know, post-Rocky scene that I'm talking about, uh, it's always really rewarding to hear, you know, sort of these two different schools of improvisation uh, working together, running up against each other. Uh, so from A Fly or Die, I've chosen a song called Theme 002. Uh, I'll also mention real quickly another international anthem artist named Ben Lamar Gay, who's another trumpet player uh, who does some straight jazz, but also just does really like bizarre albums from every genre you can think of. Uh, the album that came out last year by him uh, is actually like excerpts from other albums that he made but didn't release. And it's just all over the place. It's a really weird album that's impossible to categorize. Uh, but I'd, I'd urge anybody uh, interested in this kind of sound to check that out as well. sort of artist record I wanted to feature here. Uh, it kind of ties a lot of these threads together. Uh, this is uh, a woman named Haley Four who largely records under the name Circuit de You. I, I guess I should spell that. Uh, circuit like an electronic circuit. Day is D-E-S and U is Y-E-U-X. And uh, I believe it's French for Circus of the Eyes. Either of you guys take French class? My French I is I did bad. take three years of French in high school. I can I can converse. I can say my name is, and it is necessary that I have a pencil. Things like that. Yeah. You know how to use Google Translate, so right, probably exactly. works too. Yeah, so uh, she does really interesting sort of stuff that is gets really into the avant-garde. 
even though she is sort of, you know, a classic singer songwriter, guitarist uh, at her core, she has a really interesting voice. She's got a very low baritone uh, that she uses like a weapon. Like it just like cuts through these really interesting soundscapes that she makes. And she is like all these people, just very collaborative in the Chicago scene. Uh, her last record was called Reaching for Indigo. It was produced by Cooper Crane, who I talked about at the top from Cave and Bitch and Bajas. Uh, it features Joshua Abrams on a couple tracks. It features Riley Walker on a couple tracks. She works with a woman named Whitney Johnson, who plays the viola and does all the string arrangements on the album. Uh, Whitney Johnson has her own project called Matches, which is some really interesting sort of modern classical ambient uh, avant-garde sound music as well. Uh, so I would definitely urge you check out Haley Four and all of her projects. Uh, I saw her just recently do a live score for a silent film called Salome. That was, uh, again, sort of the circuit that you banned, but uh, doing just this like really interesting droney backdrop uh, to a really early silent film and just created a very like eerie vibe to the whole thing it was at the art institute she also does solo vocal pieces where she kind of takes her voice and loops it over and over and creates layers just on her own uh so she's just got a hand in a lot of interesting stuff and is one of these people that we're just really happy to have in chicago um until she eventually moves to new york like everybody else on this list though hopefully not we'll see uh, so I picked out a song called Black Fly, which has a really interesting jam at the end, uh, which is pretty much anchored by a very natural information society-like bass line from Joshua Abrams. So check that out. The Black sharing so so much music here this has been excellent for us yeah thanks for having me guys it's uh it's it's great to be on and uh hope to see you in chicago sometime to check out some shows absolutely absolutely um this was uh this was very cool for us and i know that 
Um, we're going to be featuring a ton of these artists in our playlists and we'll be linking to them. So I think that there's a ton of stuff that we were able to dig into here, kind of spin it off of the storage jam, this very unique, big, like large scale exploration for fish uh, in 2011 and uh, really tied into a bunch of artists from a city that as everybody here knows is very near and dear to my heart. Um, just a quick overview of what we listen to here. Um, and again, this will all be in our show notes, but uh, we listened to a little bit of Tortoise, Cave and Bitchin' Bajas, Joshua Abrams and Natural Information Society, Riley Walker along with Bill McKay, uh, Jamie Branch, as well as uh, Circuit de U. Um, so a lot of really great Chicago artists and um, yes, potentially future and current NYC trans, uh, transplants. But uh, this was a really awesome episode for us. Thank you again so much, Rob. Yeah, Rob. Thank you very much uh, for including all this fantastic new music. This was uh, great. I'm glad we finally got a chance to do this. And uh, I will welcome all Chicago musicians to come to New York with open arms. I think it's a little more expensive <laughs> to live here, but you can hang out at New Blue 151 and Avenue C. And you can go to Union Pool and, you know, a lot of good food up around here. Nothing as good as my meals I had at Alinea in Chicago, but uh, there's plenty of things that here are pretty close. So just a reminder, you can always find us on social media. We are located at underscore beyond the pond. And of course, uh, the songs, to the extent that they are available on Spotify, we'll be making part of our Spotify master playlist that we will uh, put up shortly after this episode goes up. Generally speaking, we try to publish every other Tuesday. Sometimes there will be uh, some ones that come in between. But I think based upon our schedule, the next episode you can see will indeed be coming uh, two weeks from this one. So once again, I would love to thank Rob Mitchum for appearing on this podcast. Come back in two weeks. We will hold hands. We'll talk about lots of good music. Probably not too many jam bands. Jam bands only makes you myopic, and we will go beyond the pond. Osiris.